0: What I want to to do in uh, in session two is uh, is begin to think about how this might work its way out in the church and uh, and in how we relate to uh, to the culture around us. So let's let's think a little bit about church. Here's a a, a verse from the Bible, which I've found helpful recently, and kind of I guess speaks about what what we try and do as a living out team. So. Um, so uh, one Timothy, Paul in one Timothy, Paul is is talking about the uh, the church, and he describes the church as God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Um, living out was was formed about ten years ago, a group of uh, same-sex attracted Christian leaders, um, believing the kind of stuff that i I've, I've talked about, but wanting to equip at the church to handle this question and relate to people in a way that was loving, kind and faithful to what Jesus teaches. And I guess the two things we end up doing are, kind of session one, because we want the church to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. You know, the church's job is to lift up the truth of God's word, including on marriage. But then the second thing we want to do is we want the church to be a family. So the church there is described as God's household. It's kind of family language, probably extended family in ancient times, but mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and so on. And so what we're gonna look at in this uh, beginning, at least of the second session, is what does it mean for church to be a family, particularly when it comes to the area of sexuality? Now what the Living Out team did, actually before I joined them, was, uh, was put together a, a 10-point audit and basically, there were 10 points which were designed to help churches to ask, how are we handling this sort of area? Now, I'm going to talk through the 10 points. I hasten to add, it was written before I joined the team. So if you don't like it, that's fine. I didn't write it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but hopefully, some of it will be uh, useful. So here's the first. Your church family members include people who could be labeled L—I've got that wrong LGBTQI+, or are same-sex attracted. Now, that's not to say, come on, we need somebody to say they are so we can tick and sort of we pass the living out audit, so much as to say we want the church to be a safe place for people to talk about sexuality. You know, actually, that where people do find themselves gay, same-sex attracted, actually, that becomes a safe place for people to talk about that. Where people have got children who are gay, having gay weddings and so on, Actually, it's a safe place within small groups to talk about that sort of thing because we're family, because we're brothers and sisters, and what matters to me matters to you because we're part of the same family. And so what we want to create is a church culture where it's okay to talk about it. It's why I actually am thrilled you're doing an event like this where somebody who is same-sex attracted is standing and talking to a lot of people because hopefully it flags this is an issue we want to talk about because, of course, it's not just an issue. It concerns people. And then secondly, which hopefully I don't really spend too long on, derogatory language or stereotyping attitudes towards anyone wouldn't be tolerated. You know, as we speak about sexuality, we want to do so in a way that's kind. I'm really thankful that I think for the most part, churches have made massive progress on this. I suspect if you went back 20, 25 years ago, some of the language that was used to talk about sexuality or sort of negative, pejorative language would have been used and i'm just quite relieved that's increasingly not the case but here's number three all in your church know that we all experience sexual brokenness and all are being encouraged to confess their own sexual sins in other words as we come to this topic of sexuality all of us are broken in different ways unless you're about to tell me the only people you have sexual desires for are somebody you're married to my guess is most of us would fall short at that level you know for all of us Sexual sin, sexual temptation is something we wrestle with. There's a brokenness to all of us. And so we don't foam at the mouth about this. We don't talk about the evils of society out there. No, no, this is an issue for all of us. We all experience sexual brokenness in different ways. And the fourth, this links to some of the stuff that I was talking about towards the end of the last session. All, and again, notice all. All in your church are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice of themselves in response to God's giving of himself in Jesus. Um, I don't agree, actually, with everything Rosaria Butterfield says about sexuality, but, but she came from a, a lesbian background. Uh, she was converted, became a Christian. And, and actually, she had the clarity to say that did mean an end to her lesbian relationship and then she basically kind of went around the church gloriously naive saying so what did you give up to become a christian (laughs) because of course from her perspective well that's what you do you give up stuff to become a christian this only works the kind of stuff we've talked about only works if actually cross-carrying is just normal christian behavior You see, what we can't say is, well, we're going to live a kind of life where we kind of live for sort of materialism and live for pleasure and live for comfort. Oh, you're gay, you're going to have to give stuff up. That doesn't work. And I think one of the reasons sometimes, to be honest, we're struggling with this as a church is people thinking, well, I'm not really giving up very much, so dare I say to them they have to give stuff up. Actually, all of us cross-carrying is normal Christian life. Denying things that are important to us is the normal Christian life, according to Jesus. And so for some of us, it will involve giving stuff up financially. For some of us, it will involve giving up comfort as we stand out as being different in work. For some of us, it might involve giving up a sexual relationship. For all of us, it will involve giving stuff up. And actually this becomes coherent. If all of us are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice of ourselves, in response to Jesus' giving of himself through the cross. And then, here's the fifth one. All in your church are encouraged to develop an identity founded first and foremost on their union with Christ. Let, let me tell you one of the most important moments uh, for me. So, it was when I was a, a student um, last century. Um, and uh, as I was a student last century, I was in a, a Christian meeting uh, at the university that I was at. And uh, the preacher was talking about Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, you get a repeated idea, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And the preacher made an application that was actually quite unusual in the 1990s. Uh, He talked about uh, Brian Paddock, who was Deputy Chief Commissioner of the Met Police. He'd just come out as gay. Uh, And noted in his talk that that was a really brave thing for him to have done. But then turned to a group, probably just a little bit bigger than this, and said, you know, for some of you in this congregation, that will be your issue as well. I want you to know this. Your identity is that you are somebody who is in Christ. That's the main thing about you. You are joined to him. Now, actually, at that stage, I don't think anybody else knew about my sexuality. It was desperately concealing the tears running down my face. But, but i never forget that. Andy, what's the main thing about you? You're somebody who's joined to Jesus. You're a brother of the Lord Jesus, you're adopted as a child of God, and you're called to live that out. I'm gonna say that's true for all of us. What can sometimes be hard? I was at a a Christian conference about a year or so ago, and everybody leading, everybody who was leading a session stood up and said, I'm Richard and I'm married to Lily, I've got three kids, or you know. I'm Jeanette and I'm married to David and we've got three kids and then they were off to lead the session. And occasionally I was just thinking, it should be quite awkward for me to sort of stand up and lead a session here. I'm Andy. What else do you say? Actually I want to suggest for all of us, you know, things like being married and being a parent are important things about us, good gifts from God. But actually even those aren't even those aren't the most important thing about us. You do realise, by the way, if you make your main identity, say, parent, there is a slight problem because they do leave home. And of course, if the main thing about you is a parent, well, they leave home and your kind of life is over. But it's actually for all of us saying, the most important thing about me is I'm joined to Jesus. His Spirit lives within me. And from that place I live as somebody who's same-sex attracted, from that place I live as somebody who's a mother and a wife and so on. Does that make sense? Actually, it's healthy for all of us, if the most important thing about us is the relationship that will last forever. Sorry, sorry to break it to those of you who are married. You, you won't be in a new creation, but you will be joined to Jesus. That's the thing that defines who we are. That's the identity that we live out. Same-sex sexual relationships are never mentioned in isolation from other sinful patterns of behavior or from the forgiveness offered to all through faith in Jesus Christ. I made this point already, that that actually where same-sex sexual activity is prohibited in the Bible, it is generally part of a list. It is never the sin. One of my slight fears from the more conservative end, partly because of changes in culture, I guess, over the last ten years, partly perhaps because of some of the discussions going on within the church at the moment, is it can become the issue Whereas, of course, how we treat poor people is an issue. Yeah, do, do you see what I mean? It, it's slightly, I'm slightly aware of the sort of irony of that, given it's the issue I keep talking about all the time. But, but I hope it's not the issue churches keep talking about all the time. Because it's just one area where Jesus calls us to live in obedience to him. Again, it's just one sin if it is turned into a sexual relationship. Sin that needs to be confessed, but it is one sin. And again, that's why there's no self-righteousness on this area. And it's certainly not the unforgivable sin, because the cross of Jesus applies to all sins. Same-sex sexual relationships are never mentioned in isolation from other sinful patterns of behaviour, or from the forgiveness offered to all through faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's this one. A godly Christian's sexual orientation will never prevent them from exercising their spiritual gifts or serving in leadership in your church. Uh, When I became a church leader, pastor of a church just outside Oxford, um, my other church leaders knew about my sexuality before um, I uh, was appointed, the the whole church didn't. And then to be honest, after about 11 years serving as a pastor, it, it occurred to me, I probably need to say something about this. Um, that was partly to stop them praying that I find a wife, but, um, <laughs> but but also actually kind of thinking it, it's good to model. Actually, this is at one area that we all wrestle with, and we all wrestle with with different things. It's quite interesting. And the way we did it was we set up a, a series on sexuality and relationship. We did a session on marriage, singleness, friendship, and one on homosexuality. We called it sort of ten years ago, and. Basically, the way I did it was send out an, an email saying, hey, we're going to do this series. I'm going to do the one on uh, homosexuality, and this is why, which was quite an interesting email to press send on, actually. Now, what I expected, to be honest, I didn't expect problems. What I expected was a sort of, a sort of awkward silence, hey, let's just pretend that didn't happen. As it was, I got emails from three quarters of the church back saying, thanks, praying, so glad you you're a pastor. It still makes me kind of emotional, that, actually. But in a sense, it was the church just doing a really good job of saying somebody's sexual orientation in and of itself doesn't prevent them from serving the Lord. Now, I know there are questions then as to what then that happens if that turns into a sexual relationship and so on. But actually, the very nature of the attraction not stopping people serving within the church. And here's the thing that most churches have fun with. God's gifts of either singleness or marriage are equally promoted, valued, and practically supported in your church family's life together. Now you can understand why this is going to be essential if we're encouraging people who are gay, same-sex attracted not to enter a sexual relationship. It needs to be a church family where singleness and marriage are seen as equally good. Now the Bible says they are, Jesus, Paul, examples of those who are single. 1 Corinthians 7, marriage and singleness are both seen as gifts. It's just, let's be honest, we're not very good at church at suggesting that they're equally good gifts. Uh, a few minutes ago, uh, there was a, a guy in the, the church that I was at, and a little bit older than me, actually, and had got engaged. He, he'd now left the church, moved away geographically. But news of the, the engagement reached the church, and it was put in the, uh, the church WhatsApp group, which is a source of great blessing. Um, and, um, and uh, basically what happened it was announced on the church whatsapp group and of course the rest of the day my phone kept pinging hey congratulations hey well done hey picture of a party popper you know, and, and all of that but as the day went on I just became slightly more concerned hey he's finally managed it and I was sitting there on a Saturday night thinking oh this is probably a teaching opportunity isn't it and so I sort of put into the WhatsApp group, I'm really pleased, this is good news, and I'm sure we're all equally pleased when he was using his singleness to serve the Lord. Send. That was great, because nobody dared write anything after that. <laughs> and uh, my phone stopped pinging. But I, I was being half serious, actually, to say, yeah, this is good, marriage is a good gift, this is good news. And actually, when single people are content in serving the Lord, that's good news as well. How we want to celebrate both. I said in the first session, the goal of life is to get married to Jesus as part of the church. I probably give up what means that some language we want to stop using. <sighs> I used this myself a few weeks ago and was repenting of it ever since. You know, I talked about, oh, somebody's still single, as though it's a kind of phase that you get past. That might be the way they live until the new creation, that's fine. And probably we need to find ways of celebrating marriage and singleness. It, it, it can be difficult that because, let's be honest, there are occasions where you celebrate marriage, things like you know weddings and wedding anniversaries and so on. Absolutely rightly, we perhaps have to work quite hard as churches to work out how do we celebrate single people. Maybe we want to think about birthdays a little bit, actually. You often, if you're part of a, a nuclear family, then there'll be people to celebrate your birthday. Maybe actually what we could do as churches is make more of an effort to celebrate the birthday of those who are single, provided they want to celebrate it, you understand. But, but you know, that kind of thing, working out how do we value single people and married people equally within church life. And then church family members instinctively share meals, homes, holidays, festivals, money, Family life with others from different backgrounds and life situations to them. You know that Jesus redefines family. So there's a moment in the Gospels where he's told, Your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus turns and says, Here's my mother and my brothers. You know, my family isn't just my physical family, my family is you guys, my disciples. Or, or there's a moment at the cross where Jesus is dying on the cross, and there's his mother Mary, there's the disciple that Jesus loved, probably John. And as he's dying, he says, Mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. And John takes Mary into his home. And, you know, I always used to read that. I said, oh, isn't it nice Jesus cares about his mom? Whereas I think it's dawned on me, no, no, there's something much bigger going on there. Jesus is saying his cross creates a whole new family where people who aren't physically related to each other are nevertheless now mother and son. That's the church. We are family. And again, the call actually is to say, again, for those who maybe don't have romantic relationships in this life, you're part of a family where there are close, meaningful, deep relationships, where we don't prioritize nuclear family over church family. That will involve things like friendships being something we really value that matter a huge amount to us. A a good friend of mine, um, a bit younger than me actually, just uh, sort of developing a serious girlfriend probably about to get married. and He just took the initiative to say, Andy, you're my friend and you will still be my friend once we're married. This relationship really matters to me. I remember just thinking, gosh, that's quite something actually. You know, a sense that, you know, it's not just once I've got my wife and our two kids, we're going to seal ourselves off somewhere. You know, family. My uh, colleague, um, Ed Shaw, tells this story. He's a church leader down in Bristol. And he was preaching on the theme of uh, church family. Uh, I think probably the passage about Jesus, talking about his mothers and his brothers. It was around the same time when he was uh, moving out of his rental accommodation and was looking to buy somewhere. And somebody in the church came up to me and said, look, Ed, we'd really like to give you a fair amount of money towards your deposit. And Ed's response was, I can't do that, that's far too generous. To which the person said, well, would you accept it from your parents? To which Ed said, well, I probably would, but they're not offering. Um, (laughs) To which this guy said, well, you're a hypocrite then, aren't you? You've just said we're a church family and you'll accept money from your physical family you won't accept it from us. You're a hypocrite, aren't you? To which Ed said, okay then, and suddenly <laughs> reflected he'd never before preached a sermon that earned him several thousand pounds. But um, now, I'm not saying we can all do that, but you can understand the point, don't you? Actually, church family, not ch- the Christian is part of two families. And if it's going to be coherent to say to people like me, Andy, it's not right for you to have a sexual relationship, that is only going to be coherent if we have deep, meaningful, emotionally connected relationships in a church family and then lastly for this section no one would be pressurized into expecting or seeking any healing or change that god has not promised any of us until the renewal of all things it's probably worth saying that the church hasn't always handled this question well And tragically, as you listen to some people's story, it will have been talking about their experiences of same-sex attraction and people trying to perform, I don't know, exorcisms, casting out the demon of homosexuality and that kind of thing. There are umpteen reasons why that's hideously inappropriate. And just to say, it might well be that people will experience wrestles with sexuality until Jesus comes back. And that's okay all of us will wrestle with different things and we don't put pressure onto people to say you must be healed of this in some way so those are just 10 points 10 points to try and think through what does it mean to do this well as a church what does it mean to do this compassionately what does it mean to be a church family where it's coherent to live this out What does it mean to be both a pillar and foundation of the truth, lifting up the truth about marriage at the same time as being God's household, God's family, being caring and loving towards those who are gay, same-sex attracted? And then just for the last five or six minutes, just some reflections on how we live in culture. Let's be honest, what I've said today, what I've taught, what I believe to be the truth as Jesus uh, communicates it, probably is a bit out of step with the prevailing view around. How are we to handle that? Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, puts it like this in his letter. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Notice the assumption Peter does assume that those who aren't Christians will accuse Christians of doing wrong. Or actually, as you look later on in that letter, 1 Peter 4, Peter assumes that non-Christians will regard Christians as strange. I mean, probably various reasons why we might be strange, but but actually Peter says, if non-Christians look at you and think some of your views are strange, that's normal, actually. And again, I think one of the, the reasons we sometimes get into difficulty in this is we don't expect that. We kind of expect the non-Christian world to say, oh yeah, no, what you Christians believe is marvellous. Whereas Peter is saying the normal situation is for the non-Christian world to look and think, ooh, that's a bit weird. That's actually a normal position to be in, according to Peter. The question, though, is what you do about that. And again, we haven't always handled this right, because sometimes what can happen is Christians can be aware that they're slightly out of step with culture, and then say, get angry, get defensive, you know, just sort of preach against the sort of world out there. Whereas Peter's response is, yes, people out there will accuse you of doing wrong. What do you do? You go back into that world and do good. Be known for your compassion. Be known for your kindness. Be known for the interest you show in gay couples and find out about their lives and work out what's going on with them and befriend people. Go back into that world and do good. You know, again, I'd love Christians to be at the forefront of combating things like homophobic bullying, actually, that where gay people are persecuted for their sexuality, treated with less than the dignity and respect they should have as people made in God's image that actually we do hate that. We go back into that culture and do good. It seems to me that one of the church's missions should be this. Our goal is to baffle people. Our goal is to baffle people. Let me explain what I mean by that. What I would love is occasionally friends of ours who aren't Christians to say, I do find some of your views on sexuality a bit weird and a bit old-fashioned and even potentially a bit prejudiced. And yet you're so kind and so loving and so compassionate. Ugh, how does that work? Does that make sense? You know, our goal is to leave a great big question mark trailing behind us. Seemingly strange views and yet so loving and kind. How does that work? We want to provoke a question. And then how do we answer the question? You know again the question will sometimes come to me you know andy why have you made the decisions you've made you're gay yet you don't seem to be running after a boyfriend why or uh, i'm conscious actually christian teenagers are the ones who often face the hardest questions i was with a, a group of scottish teenagers not so long back who went to christian unions and you know they said andy the question we keep get asking is why do you hate gay people And so we kind of role-played a bit, how do you answer that question? I think two or three things we want to say. Here's the first. We want to hate homophobia. Why do you hate gay people? Of course we don't hate gay people. Why on earth would you think we would hate gay people? Gay people are made in God's image. They're precious. They're worthy of dignity and respect. Of course we love all people. In as words, we role-played this conversation with my Scottish teenagers. It, it, that, yeah, but you don't think they should have sex, do you? Okay. Well, it depends what you think the universe is about. Can you realize, actually, increasingly, that's where I'm going as we talk about this. It depends what, what you think the universe is about. Now, I quite like the phrase, it depends what you think the universe is about, because people then ask, okay, so what do you think the universe is about? I quite like that question. What do you think the universe is about? Well, can I tell you the love story at the heart of the universe? The love story at the heart of the universe is that the God who made us, despite the fact that we ignore him, loves us passionately. He's actually willing to come to earth, to go through indignity and suffering, even to death. Why? Because he loves us. And that love is so intense, is so deep, that basically marriage is just a picture of the intensity of that love. And actually, if you're honest, that's what I think sex and marriage is about. It's about showing us that love. And actually, that's why I think what I do, because we think sex is about something very different. Now, my non-Christian friend is probably mystified by that, but at least we're talking about Jesus, which is kind of what I want to talk about, really. I just think we've got to be clear on this. I, I think sometimes there's a perception amongst our, our non-Christian friends that we kind of believe the kind of same kind of stuff about the world. It's just Christians got this weird hang-up about gay sex. Because, of course, the reality is we think different things about everything. We actually think different things about the whole purpose of the universe. And it's just useful for us to reflect on that. And that's kind of where I want conversations to go. It's not because we're prejudiced against anybody. It's just we've got a different story of the universe. Let me tell you about it. Let me end with this. You do know the person who was best at this was, unsurprisingly, Jesus. Jesus. See, what I notice about Jesus is this. I don't think you can get around the fact that Jesus has really tight sexual ethics. I mean, we saw what Jesus said in Matthew 19 about marriage being male and female, and that's before you get to gouging your eye out in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way around the fact that it seems to me Jesus has really tight sexual ethics. And yet, have you also noticed in the Gospels that sexual sinners run to him and flood towards him? And it seems to me that's the goal. If we want to be like Jesus, we can't deviate from what he says about sexual ethics. And yet our love and our kindness and our interest and compassion is such that we long to talk to those who've got a different opinion to us on this. And what Jesus does is he offers people something that is glorious. Do you remember the woman at the well in Samaria? Married five times and now with somebody who's not a husband. So somebody who you could argue was broken by the sexual revolution. <laughs> who was looking for satisfaction in sexual relationships and never found it. And so that woman, Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here's the confidence we need to have to a a world that is saying, basically, satisfaction is found in finding a sexual relationship. We want to say, no, 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 true satisfaction is found in knowing Jesus forever. And we've got good news, actually, for a world who I suspect will end up being increasingly disappointed that the sexual and romantic relationships don't offer all that they thought they might. And that's why we've got reasons for hope. Because actually, even in a culture that looks very different, we've got Jesus, and he really is the most wonderful, most excellent man who's ever lived. And that's why I'm passionate about churches holding to what Jesus says on this, but in loving, kind, gracious, compassionate, Christ-like ways, that means we can still go back into a culture that might even disagree with us on some of this.